the only way I know how to fight back is I don't believe in censorship. I don't believe in shutting people down. I believe in getting into the marketplace of ideas and competing, writing a better book, writing a better op-ed, making a better statement on a podcast like this. That's the way I respond to censorship and to cancel culture. It's the only way I know how to do it. I think in the end it will succeed. My guest today is Alan Dershowitz. Alan is a New York Times bestselling author and one of America's most respected legal scholars. He's also the author of more than 47 books, including The Case for Israel, Letters to a Young Lawyer, and Defending Israel. His books have sold over a million copies total, and over one million people have heard him lecture. His latest book, Cancel Culture, The Latest Attack on Free Speech and Due Process, makes an argument for free speech, due process, and restraint against the often overeager impulse to completely cancel individuals and institutions at the ever-changing whims of social media-driven crowds. I recently sat down with Alan to discuss why free speech is facing its greatest challenge and threat since the rise of McCarthyism. And having met with all U.S. and Israeli leaders over the past 40 years, I also asked him for his insights on the quickly changing alliances in the Middle East. Alan Dershowitz, thank you so much for being on my podcast. I not only uh, am honored, but I was also looking forward to this for the past couple of weeks. Thanks so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm happy to be on with you. Okay. So the first thing I want to ask you is, uh, I don't know how the heck you had a law career. You were a professor. In addition, you wrote close to, what, 20 books or so? Uh, no, no, no. I've written my 46th now. I'm working... Very, very, very aggressively on number 47. I'm hoping to reach 50 before I have to retire. But I'm now 82, so I hope I have a few good years and reach my goal of 50 books. Well, how do you find the time to do all this? I write every day. Uh, I'm passionate. There are always issues that um, excite me and annoy me and stimulate me. And if I'm thinking about it, I want to write about it. So... I've always been writing. I've done that all my life, and I love writing. And uh, so it's what I do. Uh, I've written thousands of articles, hundreds of law review articles, and, you know, 40 now on my 47th book. Wow, wow, 47. So apologies. Uh, you know, I said 20, but that was around maybe 15 years ago. You're up well, to there 20. are 20 good ones. There are 20 <laughs> good ones. And then the others, you know. Gotcha, gotcha. All right, uh, that, that's an honest. That That's honest. Okay, so... I want to speak to you first. You, you, your last couple of books, you, you recently came out with Cancel Culture, the latest attack on free speech and due process that I definitely want to speak to you about. But I, when I was Good. looking for guests and I said, boy, oh boy, if I could ever have you as a guest, I would love to discuss your book that you wrote in 2004, The Case for Israel, and also a book you recently wrote, Defending Israel, the story of my relationships, relationship with the most challenging client. So I want to just get into that because there are so many things that I've been just jotting down over the past couple of weeks knowing that you're going to be on the show. So my first question to you is this, Alan. Out of all the 190-plus countries in the United Nations, why did you feel you needed to write a book 17 years ago, the case to legitimize Israel's birth certificate as, as a state? Does any other country in the world go through this? 
No, and you're absolutely right. Uh, nobody would ever write a book, the case for France or the, even the case for China or even the case for Cuba or other repressive regimes. But Israel, which is the most democratic nation in the Middle East, one of the most democratic nations in the world, is condemned at the United Nations and in academia more than all the other countries of the world combined. If you look at U.N. resolutions and you count up the resolutions against Syria, against Cuba, against China, against Russia, you name it, and you add them all up, they don't even compare to the number of times Israel has been singled out for condemnation. There's a word for it. When you single out only one country, and it's the nation state of the Jewish people, and they have one of the best records of human rights, there's only one explanation for it, anti-Semitism. Israel is the Jew among nations. You might ask yourself, among the thousands of religions in the world over history, why have there been pogroms, uh, inquisitions, holocausts against the Jews? The answer is the same, and the state of Israel is there to prevent a repetition of the history of oppression against individual Jews who were stateless. Now that Israel is a state with a strong military, a strong intelligence, a strong nuclear capacity, Jews can't be picked on like they used to be for so many hundreds of years. So the fact that there is a nation state of the Jewish people is a very positive development. And I will spend a lot of my life defending Israel against false accusations and false attacks. When Israel warrants criticism, I'll be there to criticize it as long as it's treated to a single standard. The same standard has to apply to every nation in the world. Then I'm on board. So I totally agree with you. But my, my question to you is this, is that what's the other side? As someone who is listening to the first time and, and heard this, are they saying well, there has to be another side to the story, that Israel's being condemned almost on a daily basis at the U.N.? That's leg it's legitimacy. Yeah. There must be something special that this state and these people do that the whole world can't be wrong on this. Yeah, the whole world is wrong. And when the whole world said that Jews used to kidnap Christian children and use their blood to bake matzahs, the whole world believed that. The whole world was wrong. The whole world can be wrong and has been wrong before when it comes to Jews and the Jewish state. So, yeah, of course you can criticize Israel. Should it have gone into Lebanon? I didn't think so. I was critical of Israel's decision to go into Lebanon. Should it go into Gaza? Yes, it should have gone into Gaza to prevent rockets from attacking its civilians. But like every country, should the United States have gone into Iraq? No. Should it have gone into Afghanistan? Maybe for a while. But no other country in the world, instead of criticizing the policies, you criticize the legitimacy, the very existence of the state. We don't like what Israel's doing, therefore it shouldn't be a state. It's the only country where that kind of attack exists at the United Nations, in academia, among progressives, and among anti-Semites. So why do you think the progressive movement has picked up on this, this, this hatred, this baseless hatred, not based on facts? Because I just want to tell our, my, my listeners, the case for Israel that you wrote, it's brilliant in its format. You wrote it as a lawyer. You have the question, then you have the accusation, then you have what the accusers say, then you have the reality, then you have the proof. So it's open shut on each one, and you have all your sources, which I think is just outstanding. So what are the progressives, even when uh, AOC was being interviewed prior to her uh, running, 
she picked up one of these BDS talking points and she was challenged on it. Why are they picking this up? Well, first of all, AOC is a total ignoramus when it comes to Israel. She would have no idea what Israel is about. She just listens to the people to the left of her and listens to Ilan Omar and others in the squad. And they just repeat uh, parrot-like the claims that are made against Israel. Israel's an apartheid state. No, Israel's not apartheid. Israel has a more diverse ethnic religious population than any country in the Middle East than almost than any country in the world. It consists of, yeah, Jews, Ashkenazi Jews, Sephardic Jews, black Jews, white Jews, brown Jews. It has Christians. It has Mormons. It has evangelicals. It has Catholics. It has Russian Orthodox. It has Muslims. You name it. Uh, not apartheid. You want to talk about an apartheid state, go to South Africa, which has roads for Muslims only, and or Jordan, which says Jews can't buy land in, in Jordan. Israel, its laws are equally applicable to every single one of its citizens. So we have, there are territorial conflicts throughout the world, territorial disputes throughout the world. Uh, China, right. Taiwan, North Korea, South Korea, India, Pakistan, why is the Palestinian issue such an issue that uh, you can't open the newspaper any day and not see something about that? Especially the Palestinians were offered a state in 1938, 1948, 1967, of these other countries. They've never offered statehood or independence to the nations that they occupied, the land that they occupy. Uh, and yet you can't get any kind of condemnation of those countries. All the condemnation is reserved for, for Israel. If I just give you a hypothetical. If there were only one black country in the world, only one African country in the world, and all the world's attention were focused only on that one African country, wouldn't we recognize it as bigotry? I think we should recognize the criticism, the selective, double-standard criticism of Israel as a function of bigotry, not as a function of reality. So, so here's, here's what I'm, 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 I totally am with you. Uh, if I was listening to this for the first time, uh, I would say this makes all the sense in the world. Why, for example, the United States, other than you know, several presidents and Republican presidents, in fact, and especially with President Trump, uh, they recognize that, especially with Nikki Haley as uh, ambassador in the U.N. She was just outstanding. Why doesn't the Biden administration get this? I think it does. Uh, look, uh, Biden himself, I've known Biden for more than 40 years. I met him during the 1980 um, uh, Ted Kennedy campaign for president. I was very close to Ted Kennedy, so was, so was uh, Joe Biden. He's pro-Israel. His heart's in the right place. I've been in Israel when Biden was in Israel. Um, he's getting pressure from the hard left. He's getting pressure from the OEC wing of the Democratic Party to be more, quote, balanced. Well, you don't be balanced when Russia invades, uh, you know, the Crimea or, or uh, the Ukraine. You don't be balanced when you see uh, one-sided issues. And so there's a push to do that. I don't, I don't think that he's going to give in. Tony Blinken, who was the Secretary of State, has a warm spot in his heart for Israel. I used to work a lot with his father, Sam, stepfather, Sam Pizar, who was a Holocaust survivor and a great lawyer in France. Uh, I'm sure Janet Yellen has a warm place in her heart for 
Israel. So it's, it's a mixed picture. Look, polls show that more Republicans support Israel than Democrats, but there's widespread support for Israel among Democrats as well. Older Democrats more than younger Democrats, because younger Democrats have been propagandized by the hard left, by the academic hard left against Israel. But we're fighting back. And, you know, my book, The Case for Israel, and my other books about Israel, I've written eight books about Israel. I hope have had an impact in changing some minds. I know people write to me and tell me it helped change their mind. So what, what I'm just not getting this point. Progressives are for all sorts of tolerance when it comes to gender, when it comes to alternative lifestyles. Israel's the only country in the Middle East that gives women uh, equal, they're treated equally. They're not treated like grown children, like they are in some Arab countries, as well as uh, homosexuals, which are hanged from cranes in other Arab countries. Yet the progressives still find a way to side with Israel's enemies. Could you make sense of that for me? No, I can't make sense of it for you, and I think it would be insulting to your intelligence and the intelligence of your readers and hearers and listeners and viewers to try to make sense of bigotry. You can't make sense of the Ku Klux Klan. You can't make sense of, you know, white supremacists, and you can't make sense of anti-Jewish and anti-Israel bigots. Um, Israel is the first country in the history of the world, listen to this fact, first country in the history of the world to elect a woman to be its leader who wasn't related to a man who previously was its leader. And that's Golda Meir. She wasn't related to anybody. She just made it on her own. She's the first prime minister of Israel. Indira Gandhi was, of course, related to Gand- uh, to uh, oh, her God. father, uh, who was the head of uh, no, the, the guy who was the, who replaced Gandhi uh, after that. And, and the other, all the other women who have been leaders of their countries have been kind of surrogates for their male dominated leaders, not Golda Meir, first in history. And in Israel, women have complete equal rights. Half the Supreme Court are women. Supreme Court contains Arabs and Muslims and secular and religious. Uh, It's the most diverse, interesting country. And yet, you know, people don't even want to go. They boycott Israel. They don't want to go to Israel. They, They are afraid somehow that if they see a vibrant democracy operating, within the context of a nation state of the Jewish people with equal rights for all of its citizens, maybe they'll change their minds and then they'll be thrown out of the progressive movement. Today, if you want to be in the progressive movement, you have to be anti-Israel. And uh, the progressive movement has become regressive. It's become McCarthyite in its tactics. And it cancels, to get back to cancel culture, it cancels Zionists. Anybody who's seen as supportive of Israel gets canceled. You can't be supportive of Israel and be part of the progressive movement. That's just wrong. You know, when Israel was first established, it had the support of the left. It had the support of the communist parties. It had the support of the Soviet Union. And then suddenly, when it showed it was a powerful country, and it won the 1967 Six-Day War, suddenly the left turned against it because the left loves victims. The left would turn back to Israel if Israel were weak and vacillating and victimized and lost and was defeated and Iran attacked it with a nuclear weapon, then you'd see the left show some sympathy. Maybe. Israel's not going to do that. Okay, so uh, Jews are never going back to a position where they're going to be victims. Okay, so Alan, let me ask you something on that. Iran sure. is the only, well, I shouldn't say Iran, the only of 193 countries in the United Nations currently, thereabouts. 
The only member state that is threatened with utter complete destruction is Israel, and it's from Iran. Uh, has does any other does any other state that you know of or any other country threatened with destruction in the UN? Maybe I'm missing something. No, and Iran's liberal president Rafjani said a few years ago, if Iran develops a nuclear arsenal and drops a bomb on Tel Aviv, that's the end of Israel because Israel is quote a one bomb state, and if Israel were to retaliate and drop bombs on Tehran and kill 20 million Muslims, he said it would be worth it because Islam would survive with the loss of 20 million lives, but the Jewish state would be ended forever by the dropping of one atomic bomb. And so Iran has sworn the destruction of Israel first and then the United States. Israel, the small Satan, the United States, the big Satan. And so if Iran is ever permitted to develop nuclear weapons, there will be a war. Israel will never allow Iran to develop and deploy nuclear weapons. It's been through one Holocaust. It will never allow a second Holocaust. So, so the progressives and the leftists calling back uh, the U.S. government to get back into uh, negotiations with Iran over the nuclear treaty. Explain that to me. Well, I have no problem with negotiations, but the negotiations have to produce the end of Iran's nuclear ambitions. And of course we know, because the Mossad stole Iran's uh, nuclear program a couple of years ago and presented it publicly, which produced the lie. Remember Iran said it mm. never wanted to develop nuclear weapons. And here, these documents prove that they were always in the process of developing nuclear weapons. And they're still in the process of developing nuclear weapons. They've now enriched to 60 which is only a few percentage away from what you need for a nuclear bomb. Anybody who doubts that Iran is on the road to developing nuclear weapons should look to North Korea, which also denied it. And of course, now nuclear uh, North Korea is a nuclear armed country and we can't negotiate with it. So I don't mind negotiations, but the negotiations have to lead to an absolute end to any possibility that Iran will ever develop a nuclear weapon. And that's not what the Obama administration did. They gave them a green light to develop nuclear weapons after about eight or nine years. And that's why the Trump administration pulled its, the United States out of the nuclear deal. We'll probably go back, but I hope we'll go back to a different deal. If, do you think that, you know, Warren Buffett said you can never make a good deal with a bad person. Do you think there could ever be a deal yeah. with Iran? I don't think so. Not a deal that anybody would expect Iran to listen to. You know, it's you'd think we'd learn from Chamberlain trying to make a deal with Hitler. Peace in our time. Right. As uh, soon as the deal was made, the uh, Nazis invaded Czechoslovakia and other countries, and they started the Second World War stronger than they would have without the deal. That's the problem. The Obama administration gave Iran billions of dollars of money including in bills on an airplane, euros, so they didn't have to go through Congress to get approval. And what do you think Iran used that money for? Not to help their citizens, but to export terrorism all over the world and to help develop a nuclear weapon. So if we give Iran money and we take away the sanctions, they will not respond by complying with the deal. And I think every thoughtful person understands that. 
Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. And when we get back, Alan will share with us how President Obama got taken to the cleaners by the Iranians. You hear that? That's what turkeys sound like. You know what else sounds like turkeys? This. There's a lot of value there. How do you see that? Yeah, you really have to break it up into the sections of healthcare. Wall Street talking heads with no chance of helping you make big money in stocks. Why? Because they can't. According to Standard & Poor's, 92% of active fund managers underperform their benchmark. 92%. 92%. And you know who suffers for it? Millions of Main Street Americans just like you. That's why Charles Mizrahi is on a mission. A mission to help 1 million Americans take back their financial future in a way that's fun, easy to use, and profitable. And with nearly 100,000 people already on their way, you could be next. So don't listen to the turkeys. Instead, listen to how America's number one alpha investor, Charles Mizrahi, could help you make more money in two weeks than most investors make in two years. To see how, go to investingpatriots.com. That's investingpatriots, all one word, dot com. I guarantee you'll be glad you did. So why did the Obama, what was, what was going through President Obama's head? What was, the, what was his calculation of doing this? What, where was he so misguided? Was he another Chamberlain? Yes. And I wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal calling him a Chamberlain, warning him. Remember, I knew Obama from the time he was a student. We were friends. Um, he wrote me the most beautiful card for my 75th birthday, you know, congratulating me and he invited me to the Oval Office. He invited me to the White House for the ceremony honoring Shimon Peres. He sat with me in the Oval Office and he said, Alan, you've known me for a long time. You know, I mean it when I say I will never abandon Israel. I will always have Israel's back. What I didn't know is he meant he'd have Israel's back to paint the target on it because he then made that deal, which endangered the very existence of Israel. And then just weeks before he left, in a parting attack on Israel, a parting revenge attack, on Netanyahu, he didn't veto a UN resolution that declared Israel's holiest places, the Western Wall, the Jewish Quarter of Jerusalem, uh, the access roads to Hebrew University Hadassah Hospital, all to be flagrantly illegally occupied territory. Completely wrong as a matter of law, completely wrong as a matter of history and fact, but he did it. And that broke my relationship with him. I terminated my personal relationship with Barack Obama over that deception and over looking me in the eye, getting me to support him in the 2000 and uh, what was it, 2012 mm-hmm. election, and then abandoning Israel the way he did. So what was going through his thought process? You know this guy a long time. What was going through his thought process? He's not a stupid man. What was he thinking? No, he's not. No, I think he was getting revenge on Netanyahu, number one. He just despised Netanyahu because Netanyahu had courage to stand up to him and go before the United States Congress and make a speech. I was there. I sat in the front row with Elie Wiesel, um, praising Netanyahu for his courage in speaking to Congress. He got standing ovations after standing ovations, and that really, really upset Obama and set him off. And, you know, I think he's very naive. Remember, Obama didn't have a foreign policy. He had kind of like foreign principles. Uh, He had uh, an approach But his policies were very destructive. He was, in my view, one of the better domestic policy presidents in recent years and the worst foreign policy president in modern history. And you're not saying that lightly. There have been some terrible foreign... You're telling me he was worse than Jimmy Carter. 
Well, he did. Yeah. As president, he was worse. Uh, Jimmy Carter became much worse after he left the presidency. But you got to give Jimmy Carter credit for the Camp David Accords. There is nothing that I can point to in the history, the eight years of Barack Obama on foreign policy that has left us stronger and better and has strengthened democracies. I don't believe that. I think he's been the worst foreign policy president in modern history. So you you tell me that his whole approach towards towards Israel was based on just personal revenge. It was that petty. No, I think I think his last re- refusal to veto that horrible anti-Israel resolution was based on that. I think the uh, Iran deal was part of his naivete. Uh, he was told by some people in his administration, some people who are now back in the Biden administration that you can trust Iran, uh, that if they promise they'll do something, they'll do it. And there's every evidence that that isn't the case. They were clearly always breaking the deal. Alan, doesn't that scare you? Doesn't that get you a little crazy when you hear what you're saying here? The same people are back from who put together this deal. They're now back. And you're telling me, you know, Biden, he's a supporter. Part of his administration is. But now you're telling me the same guys are back in control. I don't know. That's right. That, that's, that keeps me up at it's night. It's very scary. You no, know, it's very scary. It keeps me up at night, too, particularly two or three people who are back uh, on the Iran desk and trying to get the deal done with Iran are the villains of the first Iran deal, and they want to vindicate themselves. And so I'm afraid that we will rush into the deal. The New York Times had a big editorial by some leading authority in Iran who didn't know what the heck he was talking about saying we have to rush back to the deal. We have to do it now. Otherwise, there'll be a war. Otherwise, there'll be an attack. We have to do it now. We have to get back quickly. It was a stupid op-ed. And, of course, the Times publishes only one side of the story. They would never allow somebody else to write a piece that contradicted that. And it was just dead wrong. And it gives the Iranians a lot of solace. It gives them a negotiating position when the New York Times supports giving them basically anything they want and giving it to them now quickly. So the, the, the whole, are they not seeing reality that the Abraham Accords that President Trump put in place, uh, which bypasses the whole uh, Palestinian dispute, which was we were told for years that there can never be peace in the Middle East because of, without solving the Palestinian uh, issues and problems. Doesn't, aren't there new realities? They were wrong. On the, yeah, they were wrong. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. And that's why I nominated Jared Kushner for the Nobel Peace Prize. I think he disproved the Palestinian veto over the peace process and got uh, at least three, four Arab countries, Sunni Arab countries, to support peace with Israel without giving the Palestinians a veto. Remember, the Palestinians' veto has always meant they don't even have to come to the negotiating table. They'll wait. They'll get They'll get their state. They'll get it through the U.N. They'll get it through the BDS movement. They'll get it through the squad. No, they're not going to get a state unless they sit down and negotiate it with the Israelis on which both sides will have to make painful compromises. That's the nature of how you get a negotiated deal. Would it, would it be fair to say that the Palestinian leadership never wants a state, does not want a state at all? I think there's a lot of ambivalence there. The Palestinians have never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity. They could have had a state five times between 1938 and the present, and they always said no. They can't take they can't take yes for an answer. They just always you know, running a state is difficult. Uh, becoming a terrorist and 
being oppositional, that's much easier. And so I think a lot of the Palestinian leadership would rather be the heroes of the UN, the heroes of academia, uh, the people who are being oppressed, rather than have the responsibility of running their own state, which would be an Islamic state, by the way, with Sharia law and discrimination against Jews and Christians. And look what's happened all over the Middle East. Christians have been made to leave. They, Christians no longer live in Gaza. Christians no longer live in significant numbers in Lebanon. They've been chased out of uh, Bethlehem, the home of Christianity. Uh, but Christians thrive in Nazareth, in Israel. There are many Christian churches. Christians have equal rights in Israel, but not in Muslim Arab countries. So isn't it, didn't the Biden administration just uh, give the Palestinians 200 plus million dollars or so? They're trying to. There's an effort by some in Congress to slow it down. Um, look, you should not be paying the Palestinian Authority to implement its pay-for-slave policy. Right now, if you kill an American, as a Palestinian did uh, a U.S. officer named Force, a couple of years ago, the family pays, pay for slay. And no American government should be supporting that policy of encouraging terrorism against innocent civilians. So I think there will be a lot of debate and dispute over whether the Palestinians should get back or get uh, hundreds of millions of dollars unless they stop their pay for slay program and the textbooks which demonize Jews and other things that are clearly against American policy. Where's all that aid going to over the years, the billions of dollars that were given to the Palestinians? Where's that going? Well, we know where it went. We went, first of all, into Yasser Arafat's bank account. Uh, you know you know what the Palestinians call the Palestinian Authority? What's that? A kleptocracy. <laughs> a kleptocracy, uh, a, a place where money is stolen. The money stays at the very top. It doesn't filter down to the people. And uh, it doesn't make the life of the people any better. Uh, we know how much money uh, Yasser Arafat's family has managed to accumulate, a lot of it from American aid, some of it from U.N. aid, others from NGO support and aid. But the people have not benefited. And so do, you see, do you see the Palestinian people just saying enough with this or they just don't have the strength or the organization? I hope so. No, I hope so. I think there are a lot of Palestinian people who are fed up with the fact that they're getting nowhere. You know, you don't get a state by, not, by refusing to negotiate. And I think we'll see in the next decade, of course, Abbas is going to end his leadership position fairly soon. And we'll see what the new leadership is. If it's Hamas, then it becomes hopeless for any kind of resolved two-state solution. If it's somebody who is more pragmatic, somebody who is willing to sit down and make a hard deal, hard negotiations, they'll get a state. It won't be the kind of state they want. It'll be demilitarized. It won't have an army and a navy and an air force. But that's the nature of what happens when you have years and years and years of attacking a country. Look, when we defeated Japan and Germany in the Second World War, we didn't immediately allow them to have military to continue to fight us. They were under occupation for quite a bit of time, and they had to prove their peaceful intentions and only then were they allowed to build military forces. Yeah, it, it just may, must be so disheartening for the Palestinian who lives in the territories now, uh, Area A, B, and yeah. C, to see their counterparts, to see Arab Israelis who are thriving in the country, who have more freedoms than they will ever have. In fact, at, at any of the Muslim countries, 
and who are in a, the startup nation with a GDP that's soaring, uh, startups, uh, new innovation, yeah. new technology, you know. And, and look at now. Now they may be instrumental in deciding whether or not Netanyahu goes back in office yeah. because each side is trying to make deals with the Palestinian uh, Arab parties. And um, so they not only have economic equality and political equality, and gender equality, they have political power. Uh, they have judges and justices and academics. And, uh, you know, there's no, there are no Arab people in the world who have more rights than Arabs that live in Israel. Right. That, that, that's, just, that's just reality. That's a fact, right? That has no, yeah. That's yeah. not subjective yeah. at all. You uh, try being a woman. I don't think anybody could dispute that. Right. What the people will say is that Israeli Arabs don't have as much right as Israeli Jews. And in some respects, there's a point to that. Uh, Israeli Jews have the right of return. A Jew like me, I can go and move to Israel if I choose to, whereas the relative of a Palestinian who lives in the United States can't automatically become a citizen of Israel. That's true. Uh, but beyond that, there's equal rights within Israel itself. Yeah, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, I remember uh, Menachem Begin, former prime minister, said something to the effect of, there are Christian countries, there are Muslim countries, yet the world can't find in its heart to have one Jewish country. That's right. And, you know, Jewish country only in the sense that it celebrates Jewish holidays, it's Jewish in its flag, but it's Jewish in the same way that British is British and French is French, but it has equal rights for non-Jews in Israel, completely equal rights in every respect that the Declaration of Independence, the basic laws all provide equal rights, but it is a nation state for the Jewish people. And so you can call it a Jewish state, but it's not a Jewish state in the sense that Saudi Arabia is a Muslim state. It's a Jewish state in the sense that England is an Anglican state with equal rights for everybody. How do you, how do you see, you, you, I didn't know that you nominated uh, Jerry Kushner for the Nobel Prize. That, that's astounding. So I'm, I, my, I'm just trying to get my hands around this, is how do you see this playing out? Do you see the Palestinians ever coming to the table and dropping their weapons, or do you see the Abraham Accords picking up steam and more Arab countries joining, or do you see a combination of the two? I think it's a both. I think it's both. I think more Arab states will now join on. Hopefully, hopefully, the Saudis will. Um, they might have. I think they wanted to reserve that very big decision for the Biden administration rather than to do it under an outgoing Trump administration. But I think we will see uh, other Arab and, and Muslim states make some kinds of peace with Israel. And then the Palestinians will be squeezed. Um, you know, they're not going to win a state by having Professor Noam Chomsky support them or the BDS movement support them or the New York Times support them. They're going to need support from the world international community. They're going to need support from their own people. And they're going to only get it if they're willing to compromise. And right now they're not prepared to compromise, but that has to change. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's talk about your new, your new book, Cancel Culture. I, I read some reviews on, um, on, on Amazon. The book is catching fire. It's, it's people love it. What you have to say, the latest attack on free speech and due process. What made you write this book? Because I was canceled. Um, I myself was canceled. Um, I was canceled because I defended President Trump in front of the United States Senate. 
I was canceled because I was falsely accused of having sex with a woman I never met. Fortunately, I was able to find emails that she was trying to suppress and her lawyers were trying to hide in which she admitted she never met me. She didn't know me. And I found also documents proving her own lawyers didn't believe her. And if her own lawyers don't believe her, why should anybody else? I have a tape recording of her own major lawyer saying um, you couldn't have been in the places she said you are. She's wrong, simply wrong. And so as a result of an accusation, just an accusation that I just proved beyond any doubt, I was canceled. The 92nd Street Y, where I've spoken for 25 years, canceled me and said, you can't speak here anymore, even though we know you're innocent, just because you've been accused. And so I wrote another book called Guilt by Accusation, The Challenge of Proving Innocence in the Age of Me Too. When I get angry uh, or I get upset, <laughs> I just write a book. And that's so I've written those books. And I have another one coming out next week called The Case Against the New Censorship, Big Tech Universities and Progressives. And so it looks at the new censors, the new people who are now trying to censor on the left. But cancel culture has a list of everybody that's been canceled. And remember, when they cancel a speaker, they also cancel the audience. They don't let you listen to the speaker. And that's the worst part of it, because the First Amendment contains two basic rights, the right of the speaker to speak, and the right of the listener to listen. You have your right to do your podcast, but I have a right to listen to your podcast. And if you're stopped from doing your podcast, my rights are violated as well. And that's what's wrong with cancel culture. Do you think that, um, well, you, you know, I say this with total respect. You, you've, been, you've been around the block. You've been 80 plus years on this earth and you've seen McCarthyism. Yeah. Is there any difference between what's happening now with this cancel culture and what McCarthyism, do you see this as worse, same, or, or less? I think it's, it's worse. Let me tell you why it's worse. McCarthyism was done by the government for the most part. And you can fight the government. You can take them to court. But when YouTube takes down a debate between me and Robert Kennedy about vaccination, who do we go to? We can't go to court because it's not a government agency. It's a private company, uh, YouTube. And so that's why I focus on, in my new book, big tech, universities, and progressives. They're all private. That's why it's more dangerous in some respects than McCarthyism. But it's comparable. And I lived through McCarthyism. I was a president, student college president of Brooklyn College during McCarthyism. And I fought against efforts by Brooklyn College to fire communist professors, even though I hated communism with a passion. I don't only support people I agree with. I support people I disagree with as well. And so this climate you're seeing here, you're telling me is, is, is worse than it was simply because with the enemies around us, where there's no... The enemies are around. First of all, they're good people. They're good people. They're our children. They're our grandchildren, our nephews and our nieces, our friends, our cousins. In McCarthyism, they were bad people. We saw them. We understood who they were. But it's much harder to fight against your nephew. Right. who's trying to cancel you and to fight against good people who are anti-racist and are anti-sexist and they have good values, but they don't understand what goes on when you have censorship. It was Louis Brandeis who once said, the greatest dangers lurk in people of goodwill, well-intentioned, but without understanding. Mm. And that's what we're seeing with the new censorship. So with McCarthyism, we had that moment where, have you no shame, Senator, when McCarthy was just... Yeah. And are we, how do we, how do we have it based on what you said? I'm feeling depressed out and listening to you. How do we, how do we, how do, how does, it's much harder. It's much harder because these are people who, who we can't say that to. 
these are not drunken McCarthyites like McCarthy was. Uh, these are good people, university professors, who share many of our values against sexism and homophobia and racism, all of that. But they don't understand the implications of censoring speech and censoring press and censoring information. And so we have a much, much harder fight to fight. I'm not pessimistic, though. I think in the end, the American people want to hear different points of view. That's why they listen to your podcast. That's why they listen to my podcast. They want diverse views. They know they're not getting it from the New York Times and CNN today. So they have to go to podcasts and other alternative ways of receiving information. So in your lifetime, have you ever seen such a distrust of the media? No, I haven't. Uh, you know, today, Walter Cronkite couldn't get a job on a mainstream media because he's too honest. He's too objective. He's too neutral. We should distrust the media. Don't believe anything you see on CNN. CNN distorts everything. They doctor tapes. They edit people's statements. They make you say what they want you to say. I'm suing CNN because they took a statement I made on the floor of the United States Senate. They um, doctored the statement, took out the words unlawful and illegal. I said a president can be impeached if he does something that's unlawful and illegal, but not if he just tries to get himself elected. They took out the words unlawful and illegal and had their commentators say, oh, Dershowitz says that a president can be impeached even if he does something unlawful and illegal. So I'm suing them to hold them accountable. And I've learned you just can't believe anything you hear on CNN. So how do we turn the tide on this? How are you telling me it's my, my kids, my grandkids, nephews, people that we know we sit down to dinner with? How, how does the tide turn on this? It turns by people like you promoting these values on podcasts, getting to people one at a time, 10 at a time, 10,000 at a time, 100,000 at a time. It's going to be a slow process, but thankfully the media today allows for dissenting voices such as the ones that you present on your show. And I think you're the answer. And that's why I like to go on podcasts like yours, because I get to people who won't hear my statements on CNN or the New York Times. Look, I used to write more op-eds for the New York Times probably than any academic or lawyer in history. I was their most frequent contributor. Today, the New York Times won't publish anything by me because I supported President Trump in the Senate. I didn't vote for President Trump. I voted for Biden and Clinton. But because I defended President Trump, I've now been canceled by the New York Times and by other left-wing media. So, so all, all of your credentials, all of your know-how, all of your knowledge, all of your experience, it just evaporates in a heartbeat with this cancel culture. And that's why it's, that's why you feel that all these books and everything you're doing, it's going to solve this problem? It's going to turn the tide? The only way I know how to fight back is I don't believe in censorship. I don't believe in shutting people down. I believe in getting into the marketplace of ideas and competing, writing a better book, writing a better op-ed, making a better statement on a podcast like this. That's the way I respond to censorship and to cancel culture. It's the only way I know how to do it. I think in the end it will succeed. Well, well, I, I tell you, uh, what'd you say? Eighty-two years. You're eighty-two years young. Eighty-two. Yeah, eighty-two. Wow. Well, yeah. I I hope to have half the amount of energy and and, and just insight <laughs> that you have uh, 
It's just absolutely astounding. And I, and I, I want to tell you, as depressed I, as I feel with what you're saying, I, I do feel optimistic because of guys like you who are going out there. You know, in Israel, in Israel, they say a pessimist is somebody who says, Oy vey, things are so bad, they can't get any worse. And an optimist says, yes, they can get worse. So I'm both a pessimist and an optimist. I think things can get worse. But I do believe in Martin Luther King when he said, the arch of justice, you know, points in the right direction ultimately. And I think the Americans have come to their senses and realize they're being manipulated by the press, by the hard left, by those who would censor, and that our basic, most fundamental right, free speech, exchange of ideas, is more important than any particular political result. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I really, really hope so. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just ask this one last thing, uh, because you were in academia for a long while. How did we how did we lose the war on the campuses of America where we turned good college kids into leftists and progressives? What did we where did we go wrong on that? First of all, we haven't lost the war. It's a war that's very much being fought on college campuses. And some of the bravest people are young uh, conservatives, Zionists, uh, Christians, um, the supporters of free speech, libertarians. So it's not a fight that's been lost. But what happened is professors started using their classrooms as propaganda platforms. You know, 50 years of teaching at Harvard, I never expressed a personal view in the classroom. My job was not to teach the students what to think, but to teach them how to think. And so I always took the devil's advocate point of view. I always expressed views different from what the majority would express just to get the conversation going, to get the students thinking for themselves. That, I think, is the goal of education. We have to get back to that. You know, my, my kids went to Brooklyn College, and they told me in the past seven to ten years the professors used their classes as bully whips at bully pulpits where they basically spewed whatever they wanted against Trump, against Republicans, against conservative values. And against Israel. And against and, oh, Israel. Let, let me give you an example. Yeah. Let me give you an example. Uh, this may be a little bragging. But I probably am among the most distinguished graduates of Brooklyn College, certainly among the most distinguished graduates of their political science department. Political science department will not allow me to speak, will not invite me to speak. They will invite Norman Finkelstein and Norm Chomsky and anybody who has anti-Israel advocacy. They can come and speak at Brooklyn College. But if you dare to support Israel, don't expect to be invited to Brooklyn College, even though I graduated there with great honors. I was president of the student body. I was head of the debate team. No, I'm not good enough for Brooklyn College anymore because I've been canceled because of my views on Israel, my views on defending Trump. So that's what's happened to Brooklyn College. And, you know, my archives are at Brooklyn College. All of my history is in the library at Brooklyn College. And I hope there'll come a time when it'll change. I was at Brooklyn College when they went through McCarthyism. Now they're going through left-wing McCarthyism. Let's hope they get back to a situation where all points of view can be uh, presented. Yeah, I know. You know my, my kids, when they sat in class, and I said, what did you do when you heard something that you disagreed with? And they just said, we stayed silent. They said, it's just not worth it. Yeah. You, the, class, the, the classmates would shout them down, and then the professor would give you a bed mark on, on, a, on, a, on a test or, or, or a final grade. I said, you got to be joking. They said, and no. Students and students today are being suspended suspended. Do you know that a town manager in, this is in Minnesota, but in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, was fired because he had the gall to say that the woman, Kim, um, 
um, trying to remember her last name, uh, the officer who shot this young man named Wright, that he was that she was entitled to due process. And as a result of saying that Kim Potter was entitled to due process, the manager was fired. And that's what's happening with students today. Students get up and say, you know, I understand that it's terrible when an innocent black person is shot by a policeman, but you have to understand policemen are under pressure. They would get suspended from school for saying that. Um, and, you know, you just can't today express opposing points of view in the classroom. And there's something very wrong with that, because once they get out into the real world, they'll hear opposing points of view. They might as well get to hear them in the classroom before they get out into the real world to learn how to respond to them. Yeah, just absolutely astounding. Hey, Alan, give me, give me a final word. Give me just a takeaway that would make me a little happier. We've had these fights before. Right after the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and the Bill of Rights were enacted, we had the Alien and Sedition Act in 1797, 1798. We overcame that. We overcame McCarthyism. We will overcome this new form of left-wing McCarthyism. Just keep the faith and understand the enduring values of our Constitution. Outstanding. And keep writing books. And, 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 and God, should, God should bless you with, uh, with another 40 to 50 million years to keep writing books and, and getting out there. And uh, I tell you, it's, 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 you're, you're, you're a voice of reason in, in a sea of distortion and, and lies. It's just absolutely astounding. I appreciate Absolutely. that. Thank you. And keep, keep educating the public through your podcast. Great. Alan Dershowitz, thank you so much. Uh, you not only made my day, but really my month. I'm so, I'm so glad you've been on the show. And, and best of health and, and luck to you in everything that you do. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Be well. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on the Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.